Good afternoon. Those are wonderful hymns, aren't they? To be able to lift up our voice in song and to give praise and adoration to Him. And that is rather fitting with the message that we have today. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13, we're nearing the end of this wonderful book. And uh, today's text will be verses 13 to 16. The title of the message has already been said, New Covenant Sacrifices That Please God. As we think about sacrifices, just consider with me for a moment, how long have sacrifices been around? All the way back to Adam and Eve, right? I mean, you think about that in in the entire Levitical system, the the, uh, Old Covenant, you've got the Pentateuch, especially Leviticus, that lays out um, how sacrifices are to be done and and even that morning and evening sacrifice, they were, it, the altar was to be blazing continually. And then you think of um, before the tabernacle was built, they did that in the wilderness, and then the tabernacle was built. And then Solomon's temple was built. And what happened? They were offering sacrifices in the temple continually. But that temple would be destroyed. You remember that? That would be destroyed and there would be a season where the people did not do or offer sacrifices. They were in exile. Okay? And then what happened when they returned from exile? Ezra, Nehemiah, Nehemiah building the wall, right? A sword and a trowel, sword in one hand, a trowel in the other. The temple was rebuilt. But as we know from the book of Haggai, um, it paled in comparison to Solomon's temple. Nevertheless, those sacrifices were then reinstituted. And then you come to the first century, and you've got, during the, the, the time of Christ, you, um, Herod had taken that second temple, as, as it's commonly referred to, and greatly enhanced it because of his wealth, and he wanted that temple to look nice. But in 70 AD, when Titus came in, there was the Jewish wars going on, and Titus came in, and that glorious temple was destroyed. So put yourself in the Jewish person's shoes. No more high priest. No more altar to offer sacrifices on. So what sacrifices remain? Well, the point of the writer to the Hebrews is the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. It's once and for all. Isn't that glorious? And you think of the whole, the whole um, uh, history of redemption and God's people. And, and, and the grasping the truth, God's wrath has now been fully satisfied in the atonement of Christ. Animal sacrifices are no longer necessary. For this reason, uh, the writer of the Hebrews exhorts his hearers to continually offer up sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and to give the fruit of the lips, and to give thanks to His name, or to acknowledge His name. What does that mean? To acknowledge who He is, and His person, and all of His glorious attributes. It's the greatest error of the Roman Catholic Church is that they teach that they are re-sacrificing Christ every single day in the Roman Mass. Ripping out pages of Scripture. If they don't rip it out, they're blind to the truths of what Hebrews teaches. The once and for all sacrifice. The great commentator Matthew Henry says, Now what are the sacrifices which we must bring and offer on this altar, even Christ? Because remember, the writer said, we have an altar. That altar is Christ. Not any expiatory sacrifices. There is no need for them Christ has offered the great sacrifice of atonement. Ours is only sacrifices of acknowledgement. We must speak forth the praises of God from unfeigned lips. And this must be offered only to God, not to angels, not to saints, not to any other creature, but to the name of God alone. It must be by Christ in a dependence upon his meritorious satisfaction and intercession. That's a mouthful, but boy, that's glorious. Well, let's read our text today. I'm going to begin in verse 10. 
10 to 16 forms a, a tightly woven, carefully crafted unit. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle may not eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside of the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside of the camp. So, let us go out to him, outside of the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we, we, we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips, and give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Our Father, we do ask that you would meet with us even this hour, that you would give us the eyeglasses of the Holy Spirit, as Calvin said, that we might have understanding into the text that's that's beyond our eyeballs that we're looking at. Give us insight. Give us understanding. Help the weak one that's preaching. Help the weak one in the pew that's easily distracted with buzzes and beeps and all manner of uh, things rattling around in our minds. Lord, that we might learn of you to the end that we might be a church that is transformed, that offers many sacrifices to you, but new covenant sacrifices. That others would look on and even see that truth we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the whole idea of having a, a, a spiritual altar is, is, is glorious. It's not like the earthly altars. It's not like the earthly altars where, where uh, animal sacrifices were one after the other after the other. Ours is a once and for all sacrifice. That's the glory of Christianity. In verses 11 and 12, explains that idea of us having an altar. Remember, he drew out the idea that just as the Day of Atonement, the most holy day of the Jews, those animals, when they were brought in, and that blood was spilt, and that blood was taken into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat, those carcasses could not be burned on the tabernacle grounds. They had to be taken past all the camps, all the tribes of Israel, outside of the camp. And that was all pointing to the idea that sin had to be completely removed. God is not pleased with 90% of our sin removed and, and, and holding on to 10%. All of it has to be outside of the camp. It's a picture of what Christ would do. And that's why he says, therefore also Jesus suffered outside of the camp. A glorious picture. Jesus is that ultimate atoning lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world outside of Jerusalem's walls, out to Golgotha. And that's a glorious picture of that he has come not for the righteous within the city walls, but for the unrighteous, for the outcasts, for the castaways like you and I. That's who he's come to die for. So today now, a little bit of a shift. Um, we're going to look at this under three heads. And my purpose is that GBC would be known for offering many sacrifices to God and for His glory alone. So we're going to consider this first verses 13 and 14. Very simply, let us go outside of the camp. Secondly, let us offer sacrifice of praise. At verse 15, and then verse 16, let us share and do good. First of all, we're called to go outside of the camp. He says, so let us... Go out to him outside of the camp, bearing his reproach. Humble yourself to bear his reproach. Humble yourself to endure shame and hardship, even as Christ has done. Now, you look in the, the text here, the ESV and uh, NET, I think, has therefore. It's not the normal word for therefore. Uh, the NAS has so. It's an emphatic marker of result often associated with an exhortation. So what we could say is, is for this very reason, or as a, as a result of, let us go outside to him. 
Uh, the writer of the Hebrews must have been a vegetarian, or he likes salad because he gives us a, a, a virtual, a veritable salad bar. Right? Lettuce, lettuce, lots of lettuce, right? And you've got 12 of these exhortations throughout the book, right? And, uh, you know, chapter 4 and verse 1, let us not fear. No, it's let us. It's a horatory subjunctive, which has the force of a, of a strong exhortation. It's not the, in the imperative mood. So forget the lettuce out of your brain. <laughs> let us not fear. 4.11, let us be diligent to enter that rest. Notice he's saying, I'm with you, people. Let us together do this. Right? And, and uh, 6.1, let us press on to maturity. 4.14, let us hold fast to our confession. 10.22, let us draw near. 12.1, let us run the race with endurance. 12.28, let us show gratitude. And then here, let us go outside of the camp. And then the 12th one is uh, in verse 15. Let us offer praise to God. Let us go outside of the camp. Under the Old Covenant, holiness was found in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's considered, what, that holy city, right? That holy city, the temple, that's where the priests were, that's where the sacrifices were, that's where all the external rituals of holiness is. But but the writer says, no, let us go outside to Him. In fact, it's very strong. look Look at the text carefully. Let us go out to Him outside of the camp you see that double emphasis that that's you know when that happens the writer's doing that on purpose let us go out outside to him the appeal to go out recalls um, other movements in hebrews remember previously we've been told to what enter in to draw near now he's saying go out okay opposite direction but get this Both of those are for the same purpose, the same goal. It's coming to Jesus. Let us draw near with a sincere heart. Let us draw near. Let us come to our great high priest. Let us go outside to him. The same goal is there. Very similar to the radical call of discipleship, which involves taking up one's cross and following him. Mark 8 and verse 34 So he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. So let us go outside of the camp bearing, carrying something to, to... Hold out in the face of difficulty is the lexicon definition. To bear patiently, to endure. And what is it? His reproach. His shame. Maybe this is vividly demonstrated with Simon the Serene. Remember how he was called into service? Right? In Luke 23 and 26, when they had led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to be carried behind Jesus. Now kids, picture this now. You know, all the onlookers. Jesus has been flogged, his back is filleted, he's been beaten to a pulp, he's being led outside of Jerusalem to Golgotha, and the cross has already been built. Jesus was bearing it initially, but then finally they just brought this other man in to carry it. And so Simon the Cyrene dragging this cross, bearing his reproach and shame. The first Christian martyr we know from Acts chapter 7, what was his name? Stephen, right? And, 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 and even in that chapter, that glorious chapter of Old Testament history, right? And then how he calls out the Jews of being a stiff-necked people. And it says, when they had driven, and in response to that, they said, you're dead, you've got a death sentence, but we can't do it here. They dri- and it says in 758, and they had driven him out of the city and began stoning him, bearing his reproach. In just a couple of years, remember, persecution's heating up. Most think this is maybe 65 to 66 AD or so. 
three, four years before the destruction of the temple so the Jews could remember what was the activity of the temple. And Nero would turn up the heat, as it were, of persecution upon Christians, leading to the Circus Maximus, where which uh, such things were done to Christians in which Christians would be, they would take bloody animal skins and sew up Christians inside of them and push them out to the middle of the arena and send in lions or wild dogs to attack and kill these Christians. They were also covered with uh, pitch and nailed to a cross, lined along the road, and they would be lit on fire at night. And Nero would say, these are my torches. That's the kind of persecution that they endured. That they would have fear of in just a few short years. And so the, the text is, is it's a present tense. Let us continually go out to him. It's not a one-time thing. I paid my dues. Now I don't have to endure any more reproach or shame. Continually going out to him. If separation has come between Judaism and Christianity, let's give up Judaism, that's the idea, and go to Christ outside of the camp, taking our stand with Him. Jesus also endured the cross. Remember back in chapter 12, where, what does it say? Despising the shame, right? Moses himself, turn back to 11, verse 26. It says of Moses that he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He considered the reproach of Christ as greater riches. Like That sounds like somebody in the New Covenant could have that understanding. But the writer of the Hebrews says Moses had that understanding. He forsook the riches of Egypt and he rather would endure the reproach of Christ. And why is that? It's, it's coming up in verse 14, but it says he was looking for a city. That's Scopio in the original. He had the telescope. And he's looking forward in faith to the city that he wanted to go to. And that's why he could endure and, and value the reproaches of Christ as more than all the riches of Egypt. So the writer of the Hebrews has a couple things in mind, right? Verse 11, it's very specific. They would take those animals, uh, the, the carcasses of the animals outside of the camp to burn them, right? And then also, Jesus outside of Jerusalem. But there's a third possibility that's, possible, that's there, I think. Um, and that's the scene after the golden calf. Remember Exodus 33? Moses goes to meet with God, and, and the people say, as for Moses, I don't know where he's at, but we need a God. And so they, Aaron, <laughs> poor Aaron, you know, bring all your gold jewelry and throw it in. And then later when Moses confronts him, out popped the calf. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> uh, anyway, after that scene in 33.7, it says this. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside of the camp a good distance from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting, and everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside of the camp. You see that emphasis there? And it's as though God said, you formed a golden calf. You ran so quickly to idolatry that you essentially pushed me outside of the camp, so I will dwell outside of there. That's a vivid picture. So Moses would go out to the tent to meet with him. Through the centuries, many have turned Christianity into a system, uh, and we're talking, you know, after Christ, into a system of rituals, priests, altars, sacrifices, sanctuaries, all of these types of things, which create barriers between us and God. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus Those who continue to model after the old sacrificial system cannot participate in Christ's true and final sacrifice. Sorry, if, you know, I was brought up nominal Roman Catholic. I'm, if there's any Roman Catholics here or whatever, but this is the truth. That altar that they claim 
Even the priesthood, all of these things, you can see they want to carry those things in to the new covenants. Separation can be costly going outside of the camp. Sometimes we're called to do that alone. Um, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul told Timothy. Religious establishments will mock you. The world will certainly mock you and desire to persecute you. But it's when we have the right perspective, when we put enough value on the finished work of Christ and how He set His love, as we're going to hear, I trust, later um, in Sunday school, but that He predestined us, that He set His love upon us from before the foundation of the world. And, 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 and even saved us in time and space and continues to sanctify us and, and, and has steadfast love for His people. When you come to grasp that and you've got the right perspective on bearing His reproach, then we can respond like the disciples did in Acts 5.41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. John Piper says, obviously in the book, Don't Waste Your Life, don't waste your life on what seems safe, normal, and easy. Jesus did not die to make Southern California or wherever you live a paradise in this age. He died so we would stop trying to make our private lives a paradise on earth. You see, that's Especially 21st century America, the West in the 21st century is so spoiled. We just want our comforts. We don't want to be inconvenienced, right? And we need to repent of that mindset and be willing to take risk for God, for He is indeed worthy. So, Hebrews were tempted to find their identity in Judaism instead of bearing His disgrace for the sake of Christ. Uh, They were looking for safety and security and that which was familiar. That sounds like we can identify with that. Judaism was familiar. They were brought up in that, right? Um, But no, we must press on and go out to Him. But then, notice in verse 14, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Just like Abraham, we are to be looking for the city to come. In fact, the very first word um, there, for, right? And so that has the basis of the truth uh, of, of verse 14. We go outside of the camp because we're seeking a city. We don't have a lasting city here, so we go outside and we're seeking that city. Negative clause followed by the positive clause. As we go outside of the camp, our commitment to be pilgrims. Like in this world, we leave behind the security that we know because we're on pilgrimage. It's said in chapter 11 and verse 10, speaking of Abraham, and he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder was God. Having the pilgrim mentality is important. A.W. Tozer, I remember in his book, Pursuit of God, which I commend to all of you if you've not read it, but that chapter on the blessedness of possessing nothing. <laughs> right? Because belongings just hinder us and so much. After Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, Jerusalem just became an ordinary city. You know, people talk about these pilgrimages and going back and, oh, to go to Jerusalem. It's just an ordinary city. It no longer has any redemptive significance. Surely it did in the past, right? But no longer any religious significance in the new covenant. And that's hard for some people to wrap their brains around. But there is a heavenly Jerusalem. There is that city which is to come. A city that we see beautifully portrayed at the end of the book of Revelation, right? A glorious city, heavenly Jerusalem in which there's no need of of, of sun because light will be there all the time. God's presence is there. And notice here it says uh, that we, but we we are seeking, right? 
the, the city that we're in now, the here and now on earth, is, is, um, that's going to be put away. That's not a lasting city. But we are seeking a city which is to come. That word seeking is an intensified version of the word zeal, which means to be hot, to be fired up. That's what it is, to be seriously interested in or to have a strong desire for that we are to have. Strong desire for the city where God's presence is. The people of God are to anticipate this as a real reality for us in the future. This world is not my home. This is not my inheritance. We're living, we're living for something that's eternal and far more glorious than the bigger house and the shinier car or whatever it is or the bigger bank account. Far more glorious. So, application. We need to be willing to go outside of our comfort zones. Right? We need to be willing to take sacrifices for the Lord as we have opportunities. Sometimes that means speaking up for the glory of His name when you hear Him being slandered. Maybe that means making a commitment that once every two months to come to our outreach events and engage the wicked that are out there. Have conversations, love the lost, and share the good news of the gospel. Maybe that looks like purposely um, attending a, a, a street-wide yard sale or something so that you have an opportunity to intermingle with the neighbors like we have this weekend. You can pray about that. Um, you know, and, and, and being willing to share the things, not just you know, your kids or whatever, but to bring it around to the Lord, standing up for righteousness. Whatever we suffer now is light and momentary compared to what is to come. Charles Spurgeon said, then do not look for a continuing city here. Do not build your nest in any one of the trees on earth. They are all marked for the axe, and they will all have to come down your nest too if you have built upon them. Our holy faith makes us a separated people looking for that city which is to come. So, first point, summary. In light of God's saving work, let us go out bearing His reproach. Secondly, verse 15, let us offer sacrifice, sacrifices of praises. Let us continually do this. Verses 10 to 16 is a unit, as I said, and verses 15 to 16 are really the climax of these exhortations that he has given us. The admonitions leading up has told us how to live the Christian life and really to live out a life of worship, right? Back in 1228, I think he's keying off of that. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer God acceptable service with reverence and all. Our life is worship, how we live for him. And here he tells us to offer up sacrifices of praises. Notice the author intentionally uses offer up and sacrifice, words that, we, that he's used many times speaking of Christ himself in the earlier chapters, especially chapter 7 through 9. And, and, and look, let us continually, let us keep on offering up these types of sacrifices. As I said in the old testament it was the sacrifices were morning and evening and continually and you see that language leviticus 6 and other places um, that it, it was to happen all the time and so we too are to continually offer up sacrifice of praise giving glory to his name first thessalonians in everything give thanks philippians 4 right um, do not be anxious for be anxious for nothing with thanksgiving let your request be made known unto God. These are exhortations to us. Jesus has explained a, a radical change has taken place of how we would worship God in the new covenant. You remember the, the woman at the well. We worship in spirit and in truth. So in the old covenant, it was, it was a certain location. It was external deeds that we do. In the New Covenant, it's internal and it's spiritual and it can happen anywhere. Beautiful thing. So instead of offering animals to atone for sin, we gratefully 
offer sacrifices of praise for what He has done, for providing a perfect sacrifice of Christ on my behalf. John Calvin said, Men in general praise God in such a manner that He scarcely obtains the tenth part of what He is due. Um, I would even say probably more like maybe 1%, a 100th part of what He is due because He's due such glorious praise. Every day should be a day of praise for you. On your hardest day, it should be a, a day of praise for you. And I'm speaking to you Christians. If you're truly in Christ, every day is a, is a day of praise. His mercies are new every day. We see these thank offerings in the Old Testament. One place is Leviticus 7.12. If he offers it by way of thanksgiving... Then along the sacrifice of thanksgiving, he shall offer unleavened cakes, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers spread with oil and cakes of well-stirred fine flour mixed with oil. So you had these, even in the Old Testament, these thank offerings, right? When a leper was healed, there would be uh, these um, thank offerings that were given. Now this doesn't mean that we don't have difficulties and trials in our life. Sometimes we have dark providences, as we might say. God is sovereign, and, and you know sometimes He brings difficulty, trials, and afflictions into our life, but the purpose is that He would draw us closer to Him. It's said that when Jonathan Edwards died, by the way, from a, uh, an adverse effect from a smallpox vaccination, that Sarah Edwards, uh, his wife, could have complained to God, come on, this is how he died, he's only in his mid-50s, you're taking away my husband, the father of all my children. But just a couple days later, later, she's writing a letter to her oldest daughter, and she wrote something to the effect of that um, God's goodness has delivered a dark cloud to our family, but he is still good. That's the attitude we need to have. That's the confidence we need to have. The Apostle Paul writes uh, that our, our whole response to the grace of God and the Gospels, you know, Romans 1 to 11, you know, all this rich doctrine that He's justified us, He's sanctified us, He's working in us. And then chapter 12, the application, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Notice that. A living and holy sacrifices are all in all, our body, everything in our life. Worship is a privilege. It shouldn't be a burdensome obligation. Oh, I've got to go to worship. Maybe I'll just show up late and that way it'll shorten and I'll leave right away. I hope that's not your attitude. It is a blessing to worship God in His worship. It's something that's pleasurable. It's something that edifies and strengthens us that we might go and bear His reproach. We should be a joyful people. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing His praises, the Psalms say in many places. Worship is something that is to be ordained by God, and done the way God says. We call that the regular principle of worship. We only do that which we're commanded in Scripture. and Also, it is to be God-centered because of that very reason. Many evangelical churches focus simply on, quote, getting people saved, right? Um, but not discipling them unto maturity, and, and learning, uh, guiding them on how we live the Christian life. And while we love the doctrine of justification and we're glad that people get saved, that's not the end all. <laughs> that's not the end of our salvation story. We are to be a people that are that offering spiritual sacrifices. We read it back in 1 Peter chapter 2. I want you to look at that with me. Turn back there. I mean, no, no, it's amazing all through the New Testament how, how the sacrificial language and the priesthood and all that like is carried over, but it's applied in a new covenant way. 
Sacrifice of the praises, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. And then look with me here at verse 2-4. And coming to him as a living stone, which has been rejected by man, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, as living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Look at this to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The New Testament writers use this language, and that's what we're considering today. New covenant sacrifices that that we're to be actively engaged in. Matthew Henry says, Be not afraid of saying too much in the praises of God. All the danger is of saying too little. You know, and says, oh, this guy's just always praising God. He's always praying. Don't worry about that. It's a glorious thing. We sung it at the end of our prayer meeting, the doxology, which we've all come to love. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Praise is a good thing. So we are to offer a praise continually. Our second sub-point is that we come through Christ. We come to God through Christ. Look at the first two words. Through Him, then, let us continually. And so our union with Christ is emphasized here. In fact, it's emphatic in the Greek. That's the first words even in our English translation at the very beginning. Through Him. We must come through Christ if we're going to approach God It's only through our great high priest that acceptable sacrifices can be offered to God. For apart from Him, we can do nothing. There's only one mediator between God and man. There's no way we can approach God apart from Christ because just as the writer said, our God is a consuming fire. We must come through Christ. Third sub-point, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. That's the end of the verse. You see it there. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips. To give thanks to His name. The NAS has, it's, it's literally acknowledge, which I like better, that acknowledge His name, which means His whole person and character. It's the fruit of lips that confess His name. And that comes from Hosea 14 that we read, that beautiful chapter of repentance and covenant renewal there in Hosea 14. But in verse 2, take words with you and return to the Lord. By the way, if you want to read a great book on repentance, Richard Sibbs, The Returning Backslider, is based on those first few verses. Return, return, the returning backslider. And that's what Israel was, right? But look here in verse 2. Take Take words with you and return to the Lord and say to Him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously. That's a good petition. Take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously. And then it goes on, that we may present the fruit of lips. We may declare Your goodness and Your greatness. So we are told here to publicly confess and acknowledge our gratitude towards him for the great work that he has done in saving us. Charles Spurgeon again, he says, if if you are believers in Christ, you are God's priest. This is the sacrifice that you are continually to offer the fruit of lips and the giving thanks to his name. Remember what Paul said in Romans chapter 10, that familiar passage Um, It says, if you confess with your mouth, right? Confess, agree with, say, all right, confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So brothers and sisters, let us publicly confess with our mouths the, the goodness of our Lord, our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our, our, our lips are to echo what we believe in our hearts. If you really believe this, your lips should echo that. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
Isaiah 57 and 19, creating the praise of lips. Peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Um, 457 in the red, hymnal, Trinity hymnal, I believe. Come thou fount of every blessing. We love that song. Tune my heart to sing your praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing. It doesn't cease even on your worst day. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of quiet praise. Loudest praise, right? Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to see your grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. First of all, we're to go out to the camp outside bearing his shame and reproach. And we're seeking that city. We're going out and we're seeking that eternal city. And then we're, we're also to offer sacrifice of praises. But then here's another new covenant sacrifice. You see it there in verse 14. Let us share and do good. It says, and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Wow. Let us go out. Let us do good. And in fact, he actually says, do not neglect. You remember that from earlier? Do not neglect to show hospitality, for in so doing, some have entertained angels. It's the same force, same word here. Don't neglect it. It means don't forget to do it. <laughs> don't forget at all. Now, let me ask you, do doing these good works add to your security in Christ? God must be really pleased with me. I mean, I feed the poor three times a week. I mean, I'm serving, I'm doing this, I'm, I'm, I'm the first one to church, I'm the last one to leave. God must be really pleased of me. Your works contribute absolutely nothing to your salvation, right? Grace through faith, it's the work of Christ. The one who trusts in what He has done, rather than, you know, it's, it's trusting in what Christ has done, not your own accomplishments, if you're trusting in your own accomplishments and your own works, you're outside of Christ. You, you, you can't be saved and think that your works somehow contribute to that. So in regards to your salvation, your works contribute nothing. But we Christians do good works. We do good as an expression of gratitude and worship unto God because He saved us by His sovereign grace. He is worthy. So I want you to get that straight. It contributes nothing to salvation, but it's an expression of worship and gratitude to God for what He has done. Doing good. This word only occurs here in the Greek Bible. It means to do good with the, with, uh, and to be beneficial to someone. It has the idea of benefits in it. And so the text is speaking of doing acts of kindness. That's a solid... Um, expression of real concern for others and meeting their needs. Praise to God and word and deed are inseparable. Oh, I'm so good at sacrifice of praises, but the deed of doing good, you know, who wants to get down in the mud and the dirt with other sinners? No, they go together. They go together naturally. 2 Corinthians 9.13 <clears throat> Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your liberality of your contribution to them all. That's what it should mean, doing good. It's a liberality. Third John, uh, verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God but the one who does evil is not of God. So you think of these definitions of worship and religious service in the New Covenant. You know, this, this text here, 15 and 16, um, but this idea of doing good and sharing. God is, um, God is pleased with such sacrifices. But also, you think of like James 1, right? Pure religion is this ministering to widows and orphans in their distress. You think of Romans 12.1, a living in a holy sacrifice. Those are verses that we should think of. So 
Do not neglect. Remember to show good. But then he says, and sharing. And sharing. This is the word koinonia, which we know, common word. It has a range of meanings. It can mean fellowship. But it also has the idea of um, the second definition in the lexicon is an attitude of good will that manifests an interest in close relationship, generosity, and fellow feeling. So we're sharing with those. That's like the early church, right? You have those verses in Acts where um, and those who had believed were together. They had all things in common. Um, 432 of Acts, and the congregation of those who believed were with one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed anything belonging to him, what was his own, but in all things they had common property. Now that's not saying let's just bring all our property and live as a commune, right? I mean, the early church did do something like that. But what it's saying is being sharing the oneness, one heart, one soul that we have together. It is clear that contributing and sharing with others is essential and goes with offering sacrifice of praise to God. Helping others involves, it's a high cost. It's not cheap. Scripture calls it a sacrifice. It should be a sacrifice, right? It should come naturally with Christian love, but, but it's not always easy and it often involves sacrifice. Sacrifice of your time. You're investing in somebody, right? Sacrifice of your resources. Sacrifices uh, of, of extra time and prayer for certain things. But to do good, it's not cheap. Many want to give to charity from their abundance, but they do not want to sacrifice to help others. But if you want God to be pleased with your conduct, you will have sacrifice. In our community group, we're going through First John and a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago, we hit the end of chapter 3. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. You see those go together. And then finally it says that God is well pleased with such sacrifices um, it's the same root as 11.5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so he wouldn't see death. And, and he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. We are called to be pleasing to God. You see that in Ephesians 1. He's predestined us out of the pleasure of his will. And so really, I, I see 12.28 that idea of, of worship that we talked about back there, um, that's showing gratitude, acceptable service, and now we come to these sacrifices of 15 and 16 as bookends of this section here. Corey Ten Boom, most of you know that name. Um, they were a family that helped the Jews during um, the Nazi, um, uh, to escape the, the Nazis during World War II, and her father, when she was little, she tells him a story. His name was Casper, was a watchmaker. And they had a shop, and they'd gathered for family worship in the morning. And there was booze, the bills that were um, piling up and that needed to be handled. So they prayed specifically that God would bring somebody that day to buy a watch, to have the money to take care of those bills. Amazingly, a customer did come in and purchased an expensive watch. And the customer complained about another shopkeeper who sold him a defective watch. Corey's father said, let me see it. And he examined the watch. It was just a minor fix and told him that's actually a really good watch. So he gave him, insisted on giving the money back for the watch that the man had just bought and bringing the watch back. Later, little Corey says, Papa, why, why, did, you, why did you do that? Aren't you worried about the bills that you have? And the father said, there is a blessed money and an unblessed money. God would not be honored if another man's reputation was wronged and harmed, especially since the other merchant was a believer. He assured the little girl that God would provide. Just a couple days later, a man came in and bought the most expensive watch in the shop. So it not only paid for all the bills, but two years of Corey's own education. 
let us do good. Let us do these things that are pleasing to God, that we know God is well pleased with. Well, a couple points of application. Let us be a church that excels in doing good. Amen? Do we want that reputation? We have to earn that reputation. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We're glorifying God through offering spiritual sacrifices, and that begins with praise to God. Listen, when I was a brand new Christian, the man that discipled me first, named Kent Heckle, 33 years ago, this man was filled with praise. He was he had more energy than than the the than anything, and it basically in the Old Testament praise the word is hallelujah, and he would often recount the Lord's goodness or dealings in our life. Hallelujah! I mean, with a loud voice, it's it's contagious. And we saw him about three or four years ago. He's pastored up in Montana for a long time and is retired, probably in his late seventies, but. He's still got just that much energy, doesn't he, <laughs> when we had lunch with him. We are to be those that freely offer up praise. Jesus Christ has done, done so much for us. Our lives should be a living and holy sacrifice to others. One of the Puritans, uh, William Secker, says, A drop of praise is an unsuitable acknowledgement for an ocean of mercy. Let that sink in. Ocean of mercy He's given us. But we give Him one drop of praise. Ought not be that way. And then secondly, let us go outside of the camp bearing His reproach. Listen to me. If there's anything the last five to ten years in the United States of America has taught us, it's going to become more and more difficult for Christians to exist. Right? Um, the pressure is on. The heat is on. Difficult days lie ahead. Even Okay, let's just say the two years of the pandemic. I think that has shown us that we are going to be put into a corner oftentimes, and we have to be willing to bear His reproach. And we are called to give up our comforts, to set our sights on the city to come. We're called to be useful and to take risk for God. And maybe that's some of you young people, maybe the Lord putting a burden on your heart to go to the mission field, to live in a place that isn't real pleasant. For others of you, it might be uh, sacrificing in other ways. Maybe for some of you, it's doing more personal evangelism. You know, are you, are you becoming, like, like people refer to Reformed churches as dead and cold, are you getting a little dead and cold and you don't want to share that? Think of when you were first saved, the fire that you had in your bones. We need to reignite that. We need to be willing to tell of all the wonderful things that God has done. Hallelujah. Praise Him. And if you're here today and you're not in Christ, you may think you're sacrificing for God and doing all kinds of things that you think God is pleased with. But if you have not embraced Christ, it is for naught. It is for naught. Jesus is the only way of salvation. He did not come to save the righteous, but sinners to repentance. But but we must repent and believe. Isn't that amazing? The first words out of Jesus' mouth in Mark chapter 1 are those two things. Is it just believe? No. Is it just repent? No. It's repent, turning from the old life, and embracing Christ by faith. Father, we thank you for this text before us. May we be those that perhaps in the new covenant we've thought we've done away with sacrifices forever, but really the writers tell us that there is a spiritual sacrifices that we are to be offering. So we thank you for this time and your word. Help us to apply it for your glory. Amen.